Well, I announced as my title the message of the gospel. I was uh, deliberately keeping it fairly vague so that I had a bit of uh, flexibility to follow my inclinations or follow the Holy Spirit or or whatever. But um, I'm concerned with the teaching about salvation and especially preaching it and uh, knowing it in modern Britain, in the country in which most of us live. And uh, last night we were looking especially at 1 Kings chapter 18, and I was uh, comparing the similarity of Elijah's position with the position of Christians in modern Britain. It was a day of great apostasy, where people had largely abandoned the traditional faith of Israel, and Baalite prophets were everywhere. But Elijah is not uh, intimidated or afraid. He gets a bit depressed sometimes, as we uh, discover in chapter 19. But um, most of the time, he's uh, not, not intimidated. He knows what to do. He's full of assurance. He's full of power. He's not uh, wondering whether his message is true. He knows the truth of the faith of Israel. He knows the promises of God concerning Jerusalem and the coming seed of David. And from an Old Testament viewpoint, he knows the gospel and he takes action. He knows that God will answer by fire. And so he's, he's, there's a sense of control and authority and power. And we are meant to be in that same uh, kind of uh, spirit of power and authority. We're not to be intimidated. Uh, it may be that the Christian faith will continue to decline in Britain. I'm not, I'm not saying that... Uh, Revival is uh, down the road. I don't know that it is. And uh, it's the Lord who's in control of history. It may, think, it may well be that we become a, a small, persecuted minority. That, that could well happen. But uh, it, it, do, it really doesn't matter very much. The only thing that matters is that God has got a plan for history, and he has. We, we are to look at these things in a historical way. We are to look at these things in terms of the movement of the centuries, not, not just the little situation we find ourselves in today. And there is no doubt whatsoever that God's plan for world history is to reach all nations. And uh, that will happen. Um, already a country like China is 10%. It's reckoned that one in 10 in, in China is saved. Um, and one day China may, might well, maybe not so, not so very far away, maybe China quite soon will declare itself to be a Christian country. The chances of that are quite high. And uh, countries like India, I, I've read in Hindu, ty- in Hindu newspapers things like letters saying, if we are not careful, whole states are going to become Christians. And, and it's true. Uh, it's only Christians picking up orphans, p- picking up uh, needy people. The rest of the population doesn't care. Whole villages are full of uh, Christian orphanages and some of the places in India where persecution is at its worst are the very places where the gospel is going forth most uh, powerfully. And uh, God may well have uh, left Britain aside for a little while. Uh, who, who knows? But uh, I don't believe any country that's known the gospel is left aside forever. Uh, once, once God, as it were, starts uh, um, working in a nation, I don't think he ever abandons it. But our particular uh, function, surely, at the moment, is to be as strong as ever and to lay foundations for the future. That's why I was speaking on uh, Elijah's building up the altar. Before he expects the fire to fall, there is a work of going back to to everything that the altar stood for. And you'll notice when he prays for the fire to fall, we read it's at the time of the offering of the oblation. In other words, he's honoring what's going on in Jerusalem. A few hundred miles to the south is Jerusalem, and there is the the tabernacle and the mosaic system, and there is uh, the the law concerning the evening sacrifice, and he waits until way, way back in Jerusalem, they're offering the sacrifice. And at that time, he says, may the fire fall. He's honoring Jerusalem hundreds of miles away. It's a way of saying this fire is going to fall in the name of the promises of God in connection with Jerusalem and the coming of a, a saviour. Uh, and uh, it's out of Jerusalem that the gospel will go, as, as happened historically. So I'm concerned with uh, these kind of themes. But uh, what I want to come on to now then, uh, the way I feel the Lord is is leading me. I, I want us to think together over these uh, few times we have together uh, concerning the Bible's teaching about salvation. I want to focus on uh, the doctrine of salvation. 
we need to be to, to proclaim our message fearlessly, but uh, we also need to know our message, and I, uh, that's an important thing. I think very often we don't actually know our message, and uh, all sorts of things have gone astray in the Christian church since the 19th century. The church is always being attacked. It's not, it's not that it's anything unusual. Uh, you can be quite sure that in every generation, every country, every century, the gospel will, attack, will be attacked and twisted and, uh, and almost lost in one way or another. It's always been true. It's true in New Testament times. Every, every epistle in the New Testament was written to correct something. Uh, no, no one was in a hurry to write the New Testament. Remember, there at Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. Churches were full of power and the Holy Spirit. And nobody was talking about the New Testament. Jesus didn't say, uh, to your advantage, I'll go away, and then I'll give you the New Testament. There was nothing like that in the Bible. He said, I'll go away, and then I'll send the Spirit. And they were perfectly happy with the Old Testament. They, did, they didn't feel any, new, any need of a New Testament. They said, well, all these things are written in the Scriptures. Jesus has fulfilled the Scriptures. It's come now. That's it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Finish. They were not thinking of any kind of New Testament. Um, except that very quickly things began to... Uh, be attacked by Satan, persecution and false teaching and division and hypocrisy, all the problems that modern churches have, that they're all in the New Testament church. You should never, t- you should never try to be superior to the, the New Testament church. If they had those promises, we will, we, problems, we will have them too. And then the, the pastors, the teachers had to, had to deal with these things. And so that's how the, the New Testament was written. They would then put the teaching into writing. They would say, no, you've not got, quite got me right. Let, let, me, let me send you a letter. And, and the the leading and the teaching of the Spirit were put into, the, into writing and we got our New Testament. But if you think about it, all of those things are correcting something. Galatians, they're going after the Mosaic law. Colossians, they've got weird views of Jesus. In Thessalonica, they, they've got strange views of the second coming. All these churches are being attacked, even in New Testament times. And there's heresy, false teaching. Paul will say to the, to the Ephesian elders, He's about to leave them. He'll say, after my departure, fierce wolves will come, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, even, even to the, the very elders that Paul trained in Ephesus, from your own selves will come fierce wolves, not sparing the flock. So you can expect the gospel constantly to be uh, attacked, and, and it gets attacked in different ways. Uh, Satan, Satan, the great enemy of the church, will attack the church in some way, until finally people, as it were, resist him and, and the truth is discovered and he attacks the church in another way. In another way, he's always uh, shifting and moving. In medieval times, the, the great uh, dominance of the church was sacramentalism. And everybody thought uh, you were saved by the, the magic of uh, being baptized or going to mass, this kind of sacramental playing around with, with emblems and symbols and rituals. That was the great thing in the medieval times. Reformation went back to, to scripture, but, but then very quickly after the movement of the Reformation, you, you get a Germanic liberalism and the, the great message of the, of the churches is the brotherhood of man and uh, the kingdom of God, by which they mean uh, improving society. And, and you have that kind of a gospel message. At the moment, I would think in the 21st century, the great uh, dominance all over the world is the kind of idea that God is here to, to make life purposeful for us, that you fulfill yourself and you, you have good businesses and you stay healthy and God will heal you and it's all, it's all very much a self-fulfillment. It is not the Bible, is it? I mean, you, when you read the New Testament, you, you don't find Paul saying, well, I'm coming to help your business succeed and I want you to find fulfillment. You, you don't find that in Scripture. It's the current way in which the churches are are wandering. So we have to know our message, and we'll often find ourselves in a bit of a minority. Um, that's all right, don't worry about that, but uh, we have to find our message. So that's my concern at the moment. Do, do we know our message? Do we know the message of salvation? Well, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read for the moment the verses in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of the section, which is verse 10, Hebrews, uh, Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, where Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, and uh, it's in the situation where there's a lot of Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus, and Paul is wanting to expound the purpose of God, this great, amazing (coughs) purpose of God, in which he brings uh, Jews and Gentiles together in one body, 
and Gentiles become fellow citizens of the saints. He wants them to know the, the greatness of salvation, the power of God. And it's in that context he speaks of what a great thing God has done in saving us. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, and he brings in the message of salvation in verse 4. But God, he says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then there comes these uh, famous and wonderful verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are those very two, those very simple two verses concerning salvation. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so, so that no one may boast. And the first thing I want you to notice is the simplicity of these verses. They're very simple, really. By grace, you're saved. True faith. Not anything you do. It's not just that God gives you salvation freely as, as you put your trust in Jesus. I want you to notice the simplicity of these verses. And this is very important, uh, I believe, and I, I feel that I want to emphasize it. Um, because uh, we, we need to think a little bit, and I, I get the impression uh, that... Uh, what I'm about to say is especially true of NCMI churches and ex-NCMI churches. Um, the kind of circle that many of us have come from has become, has been fairly undoctrinal, at least it seems to me. I'm not a, I don't have a great knowledge of all these things, but it seems to me it's been fairly undoctrinal. And it seems to me in the last few years, people have woken up to that and said, no, no, we must go back to Scripture and the Word of God and the Christian faith. But I feel there's a danger there. And the danger there is you go from one extreme to the other. You go from the extreme of having no, no theology to the other extreme of having only theology. And, I, and I, I detect a little bit of this in NCMI circles and ex-NCMI circles, that everyone's very interested in theology. All right, that's okay, that's great. But there's a few dangers there. We don't preach theology. Uh, Paul is not saying to the Ephesians, now I'm going to give you the doctrine of salvation. I'm saying that. And I'm, even, and I'm even a bit uneasy about doing it. What, what I'm doing this morning, I, I would not normally do. There's good reasons for doing it. I'll tell you about them. But um, we do not preach theology. You, you, may, you may ask the question, is there theology in the Bible? Does anybody preach theology or doctrine? Uh, never mind about theology. Theology, tends to, we tend to think of that as an academic thing. But uh, never mind about do- theology, just teaching, doctrine. Does anybody teach doctrine or teaching in the New Testament? The answer is, well, yes and no. In a sense, the answer is no. Nobody in the New Testament comes along and says, now I'm I'm here to teach you about the doctrine of salvation. Nobody ever does that in in Scripture. Nobody ever runs a class in in Christian doctrine. Uh, Is there theology in in the epistles? Well, not exactly. What you have is you have the teaching, the doctrine is in the background. It's there, they They know what they believe. And uh, it's there. But it doesn't mean at any point someone says, now I've come to teach you the doctrine of salvation. I'm doing that for my own reasons, and I'll tell you why, maybe. But um, you see, here is Paul. He's talking about salvation. But he's doing it so simply, really, it is so simple. Uh, And there's a lot that he does not mention. He doesn't mention the doctrine of the atonement in these verses. He doesn't mention justification. The whole of Ephesians, the word justification does not come. I mean, imagine talking about salvation but never, never mentioning justification. Well, well why is that? And uh, he puts things very, very simply. And this is important. That the preaching is the preaching of Scripture. And even though I, this is why, if, if you've got what I'm trying to do, even though I'm trying to say something about the doctrine of salvation, I still want to expound the passage of Scripture. 
I still want to say, well, folk, let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, and, I, and I've got a kind of a scripture that I'm trying to expound to you. Um, there's, there's much greater power in expounding the Word of God. And now think of what I was doing last night. I, I wasn't trying to say, well, I'm, I'm teaching you the doctrine of history. I, I didn't say that last night. I could have done, and I sort of was, but I wasn't doing it directly. I was taking a story. An ordinary story. Say, look at this man. He's deteriorated. There's apostasy. Here's a man who knows what he's doing. He's going back to his message. I'm not. I'm not, as it were, theorising. I'm expounding scripture, and to expound scripture has much more power than to uh, teach any kind of academic detached doctrine. Uh, the doctrine is there, and you must know it. And I'm very concerned that you should know, it, and that's why I'm doing it. Um, but. Uh, the last thing in the world I would want is all of the pastors to start preaching theology every Sunday. That, that is very far from, from what I would uh, like to produce. Far from it. No, no, you do not preach theology. But the theology is there in the background. You preach scripture. And scripture is a very varied book, isn't it? Um, and most of it is not terribly theological. It's full of songs and poetry and stories and history. I mean, there's not, you hardly think of the Bible as being a theological textbook. But actually, the, the, the teaching is there, but it's coming to us. We sing about it. We, we, we praise God about it. We read of people wandering from the faith and having to come back. We think to see things of days of apostasy. It's all in a very living context. It's, it's not, as it were, pure abstract teaching. It's a bit different. It's a bit like the distinction you have sometimes in academic circles between what you call pure something and applied something. I, I remember years ago, I grew up in London many years ago when I did A level in chemistry, physics, and maths, and uh, you could do pure maths and applied maths. I'm sure, I'm sure people still do that. And uh, pure maths was exactly what it says. It was just pure maths. You're just doing algebra and differential calculus and all this stuff. You never did a single thing that was practical. It was just mathematical theory. But, um, but if you did A level in applied maths, you have these little engineering problems. You know, this, this man's got this problem, building a building, what would you do? You're not so much uh, theorizing, you're more applying. Uh, and, and so they draw that distinction. I had the same issue arise when my son, my son Calvin, came here to do his degree in Britain, which he did. And uh, he, he loved the uh, environment. He, he wanted to do environmental science. And I said to him, all right, you go to Britain and do environmental science. But uh, I said to him, don't do just environmental science. Find a degree in applied environmental science. And he did. He went to King's College and read applied environmental science. What's the difference? Well, in one case, you're just learning chemistry and biology and, and the theory. In the other thing, you're, you're learning about what to do in a game park or what you do in, in a deteriorating ecology or what you're doing when, when developers are stripping the country of trees and so on. You're learning, of, you're, you're, you're learning to use what you know. Now, the point I'm making here, is there theology in Scripture? Well, I'm inclined to say no. It's all applied theology. It's all Paul, knowing what he believes, saying to the Corinthians, well, don't do this and do this, and uh, how comes how come you tolerate this wicked man in your fellowship, and you're dividing, is Christ divided, were you baptized into my name? There's kind of theology there in the background, but he's not, as it were, giving them a lecture in doctrine. He is rebuking them, encouraging them, inspiring them, but he's using what he knows. It's all applied uh, teaching, applied Doctrine. So although we ought to know what we believe, and I'm trying to help, uh, help you and we're trying to help each other in uh, knowing what we believe, yet you don't preach pure theory, and I would not like you to do that. And I detect a little bit of it in NCMI and ex-NCMI circles that uh, we're concerned about, can we lose our salvation? Do we believe in justification, atonement? Uh, and we're studying all these kind of topics. Well, it's okay, and it's good to be able to do that, but it's, it's not powerful in terms of ministry. In terms of ministry, you, you're not sort of lecturing in theology. You are proclaiming, you are preaching. You're telling people they were sinners. Look, look at this passage here. Let me read it again. You were dead. That's not the kind of thing you say in some university class, is it? All you people, you, you're just dead. You were wandering around in sins. You were following the devil. I mean, this is, this is not lecturing theology. This is talking to people about where they were and what happened to them in their lives. You, you, were, you were just following the prince of the power of the air. You were just living in the passions of... We were all, me too, Paul the Apostle, we were all living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out what our bodies made us want to do and our minds. We were, by nature, children of wrath. This is, this is not the kind of thing you get in a, in a university course in theolo of theology, is it? 
about God's, God's being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Can you tell the difference between theology and preaching? This is not theology, this is preaching. This is applying the, uh, the, the message to, to, these, to these people. And that, that's what the Bible does. You say, is, is there theology there? Well, yes, after a fashion there is, but, but it's, it's, it's the kind of skeleton. Every one of us here today has a skeleton. If you didn't have a skeleton, you'd be a kind of blob of jelly. You'd be all just, just a pool of jelly on, on the chair. But I can't see anyone's skeleton. And if I could see your skeleton, you would be dead. Uh, you, only, you only see the skeletons of people who are dead. But the skeleton is necessary. Your, your backbone, your, your, your bone, you, you've got no structure, you can't do anything. Your skeleton is vital. You can't see it. It's there inside of you. It's holding you together, holding you upright, giving you a sense of uh, ability and power. Now, now, theology is the skeleton. It's, it's there hidden. It's the backbone and, and, and the, the structure behind the scene. But you don't preach it. And, um, and, and when you're preaching, you preach Scripture. You preach the Word of God. Your, your teaching makes you not make mistakes in preaching the Word of God. If you, It's a kind of principle in in preaching scripture, that you don't make scripture say something which, which, because of your entire doctrine, you know is not true. You don't expound one bit of scripture that, that contradicts what you know as a totality. So, so your doctrine keeps you, as it were, on, on, on the straight and narrow path. It keeps you where you ought to be going. It stops you wandering off into, into false teaching. And uh, helps you, gives you a kind of context in which to expound scripture. But when you come to scripture, you just preach the passage, you are totality, they're different altogether. Uh, when God is moving, it's powerful, it stirs you, it moves you. It's not sentimentality. I remember preaching in a certain church once, and uh, there's a daughter church of Nairobi Baptist Church, where I was once pastor, had a sort of offshoot, and I was uh, back in my older circle of churches, and, uh, and it was called such and such community church. These, these kind of churches often have the word community in it. Such and such community church. I hope you don't call yourself a community church. Otherwise, I'll be insulting you. But uh, you get these churches that really want community. And uh, you know, we want to be a good fellowship. Churches that have got that kind of ethos are often very sentimental. And this church was like that. So some uh, lady was uh, leading... I have no objection to ladies leading, but she was doing it in a very sentimental way. So nice to see you here today. The sun is shining. Now the children are going to sing for us. It was all so sweet that it was sort of sickly sweet. But they, they'd given me a passage to preach on. They, they, they were a church without a pastor, so they were choosing certain passages and asking people to preach on them to keep a continuity in the church. And they'd given me a passage to preach on, and I said I would. It was John chapter 8. But uh, the passage they had given me to preach on was Jesus in John 8, where he says to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, and uh, you're trying to kill me. It was very sort of uh, confrontational. But, but the service was so, so sweet and sickly and nice. And I was really struggling. I mean, I mean they, they were sort of really uh, putting me off my stroke, as it were. <laughs> so I finally thought, now, should I, should I say anything? About, should I do anything or should I just leave it? I, I didn't know what to do. But... Uh, Finally, I decided I'd try and deal with it. So I said to them, haven't you noticed today the way in which every single thing that we're doing today is contradicting the passage you've given me? You're all being so friendly and nice and sweet and the children are singing and you're sort of being so nice to visitors and all this. But then the passage you give me is, you are of your, ch- your, of your father, the devil. And here's Jesus confronting people, challenging them, telling them they're under the power of the devil. Only the truth can set you free and, and you're never going to be free unless you submit to me. Only if you continue in the truth are you my disciples. Everything is manly and strong and confrontational. Uh, I said, I said everything, everything in the passage is contradicting every single thing we've done here this morning. And I denounced them in a friendly sort of way. <laughs> um, then I preached the passage and uh, but you see you get chased that they're so keen to sort of welcome visitors and sort of be friendly that the thing there's no kind of uh, incisiveness about it there's, there's no clear message when you've got a clear message you're saying that some things are wrong and some things are right you know, you're not playing with sentiment and being sweet and nice to everybody and uh in this particular church, I, I will uh, tell you what happened. They came to me afterwards. They would never heard anything like, quite like that, they said to me. And uh, they said, we're gonna, we have decided what to do about it, and we're, we're calling an elders' meeting now. And if you will stay around for half an hour, we'll tell you what we think of it. 
so I sat around for half an hour twig my finger and I was wondering what on earth they were going to say to me. But in um, half an hour later they said, yeah, we think you're right and we're going to sort of do what we can. But uh, we mustn't let churches become sentimental. They're not, the Bible's not a sentimental book. It's an emotional book, but there's a difference between emotion and sentiment. There are people who weep, people who call upon God, they move, they're, they're ecstatic, they dance, they shout. It's an emotional book, but it's not a sentimental book. Not, not where you play with your emotions and, and get sweet, nice feelings. There's nothing sentimental about Scripture. And, um, and the point I'm making is you must have backbone. You must have a skeleton. You must have things that you know. And there's nothing sentimental about it. You, you, you're, 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 if anyone is moved, they're not moved because you're playing with their feelings or because there's nice sweet songs being sung. They are moved at the truth. They're moved at what's happening to them. They're moved because they're convicted of sin or, or they're full of joy and assurance. The, the, the joy is coming out of the message. It's not just playing with uh, feelings and sentiments. So anyway, I'm trying to convince you that although I'm trying to do a bit of theology with you, I'm only trying to give you a kind of backbone in the structure. I wouldn't want you to be all going out preaching, preaching the theology. No, no, you preach the word of God. You preach scripture, passage by passage by passage. You preach scripture. And you do your theological teaching via the scripture. People, um, they grow. They, they come to a kind of doctrinal understanding. Congregations grow in their understanding but they do it slowly and steadily as, as passage by passage by passage is making the same points and they come to have a clear faith and, and so on. The only time when there might be exception is when you have a lot to do in a short time, which is why I'm doing it. I, I might spend a year preaching on Ephesians. In fact, I, in fact, I have. Dr. Lloyd-Jones of Westminster Chapel spent eight years preaching on Ephesians. Uh, every Sunday for eight years. But uh, you, you, take, you take your time and you go through scriptures. But uh, the only time you do with something theological is when you have a meeting like this one, you want to put everything together all in one go. And for, for reasons of time and, and, and getting everything covered in, a, in, a, in an hour or so, well, then you might uh, be a little bit more theological. But on the whole, you don't do that. On the whole, you do it through the regular preaching and teaching of the Word of God and so on. So I'm still making the point that these things are very... I thought very simple. And when you read biblical passages that where somebody's being helped to, to salvation, it's always that way. Think of Jesus coming, talking to Nicodemus. Here's Nicodemus, and he's sort of uh, got a kind of faith in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is a good guy, and he believes in these miracles. <coughs> but he's not actually saved. And so he comes, well, you, you must be a teacher sent from God, and he's going to ask Jesus some question, but he never gets to his question. Jesus interrupts him. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless, you, unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. He says one thing. He doesn't say, well, let's sit down and we'll discuss the doctrine of salvation. No, he doesn't do that. He, he, he cuts in, he rebukes him. Nicodemus, you're wasting your time. You, you, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't know about these things. You must be born again. He says one thing only to him. Uh, it doesn't, it does, there's a lot of things he doesn't mention. And then when Nicodemus finally is sort of willing to listen a bit, and says, well, well how, how can this be? Then he starts speaking about the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He just comes in at one point, makes one simple statement, and brings in the cross and says, whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. You notice he's not dealing with the whole realm of salvation, all sorts of things he's not mentioning, but he's just uh, putting one simple thing to Nicodemus. And the same thing in the next chapter, the, the woman of the well, Jesus just chats to her about, about uh, the water, uses the water as a picture. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You keep on trying to live the way you're living, every, you'll be thirsty. You'll always be trying this and trying that. That doesn't work. This runs out. That gets dry. You keep on coming back again, trying something else. Whosoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give them will never thirst again. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up. It's not laborious. We're going to get your bucket all the time. It's something internal, something springing up within you. He says one thing, puts it in one way. And she wants to discuss religion. You know how people want to discuss religion. Well, our father's worshipped on this mountain. She wants to discuss religion the way in which people often do. Jesus keeps on arguing, answering her. So finally she says, yeah, well, Give me this water. And at that point, he says, oh, go fetch your husband. So the one problem in her life is her, her matrimonial life, which is a bit of a mess. Go fetch your husband. 
Well, actually, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had five, and even the one you're living with is not your husband. He zeroes in on the big sin of her life. And when she says, well, Messiah's coming, he says, I who speak to you am he. But again, you see the simplicity of it. He's not uh, expounding the whole doctrine of salvation. He's dealing with one point, that she can have a living water springing up the, the, the blessings of the kingdom of God within her life, satisfying her at every point, not, not having to keep on going, get buckets full all the time, springing up within her. But you need to deal with sin. You, you can't even get it unless you, you, you face the fact of sin. And you need to know who Jesus is. I who speak to you am he. That's all it is. It's very simple. And this is the way it is. I was saying yesterday, you see, that... Uh, Every time, week by week by week, we should be preaching the gospel. And I tried to uh, not make you, to not let you misunderstand that. I don't mean always preaching the same message. I don't mean, mean calling people forward every, every single Sunday. I'm not talking about some kind of boring routine which you always do. I don't mean that. I mean in every passage of scripture from this angle and this angle and this angle and this angle, week by week, immense variety. You never repeat, you go on for years without ever repeating yourself. You, from a thousand angles, you're always coming to the centralities of the gospel. Maybe one little thing at a time. But each time there's power, there's, there's a, a focusing on, on something which will save people. And uh, that's what I meant by regularly and constantly preaching the gospel. So you don't preach theology. And then think of the other examples. Think of Jesus saying, uh, come unto me, all you that labor and the heavy laden, I will give you rest. Again, it's very simple. Think of, of uh, Paul's words to the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And he does say, well, I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote Romans a few weeks ago. Let me give you a copy and you work through it. <laughs> he doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't even tell the man to repent. He says one thing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He only speaks of one little central thing. So, um, you don't preach theology. Theology is the backbone. In the, in the New Testament, theology is there, but it's sort of applied. However, it is good to go into the, the further ramifications of salvation. That begins very simply, and I'll try to deal with its big things in a moment. But um, you do eventually get into the, the entire teaching of concerning salvation in the scriptures. Now, why should you do that? Well, you, you don't do it initially. You don't, have to, you don't have to give somebody a theological course to help them get saved. But, uh, but eventually, you do want to see the whole uh, richness and wealth and scope of salvation. And think, think of this uh, letter to the Ephesians. Paul is wanting them to see the height and the depth and the length and the breadth. He uses those phrases. He says, I want you to know, I'm praying for you. And all the way through this letter is a kind of prayer. It begins in chapter 1. He says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. I want, I want the Holy Spirit to show you things. A, a spirit of revelation, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the, great, the greatness of his power at work in us who believe. He does want them to know all these things, and he's going to expound it to them in, in, in this letter to the Ephesians, and he's praying that their eyes might be open to know the riches, the treasures, the glories of this great salvation. He, he doesn't leave them just knowing one, one little simple thing. You see, people uh, can be saved very simply. You don't, you don't need a massive uh, series of lectures to get saved. But then you then do need to come into the whole counsel of God and see all that's there in, in the Scriptures. And Paul goes on praying and teaching them. He's teaching them. He's also praying for them. He comes back to his prayer again in chapter 3. He says, I bow my knees to the Father, that he'll strengthen you with power through the Spirit. That's very interesting. You need specially to be strengthened to see the greatness of the gospel. Before he prays for particular things, he prays that they might be strengthened to grasp hold it, strengthened in, in mind, strengthened in spirit, strengthened in heart, strengthened in willingness to hear, to respond to, to what you hear. He prays for a kind of strengthening, an inner strengthening, before he even tells the specific thing he prays for. 
And he says, I want you to comprehend, verse 18, 318, I want you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. You see, there is a great gospel out there and there's lengths and breadths and height and depth and marvels and treasures to it. The only point I'm making is you don't have to throw the whole lot of people all in one go the first time you meet them. You just begin with where they are. And one sentence maybe. The sentence has got to be a good one, but uh, one sentence. You must be born again or believe in Jesus. One sentence is all that the evangelistic uh, interviews of Scripture contain. Why why do we need the the wider perspective? Well, uh, I could say just because it's there. Remember when Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest for the first time Ever, anyone ever got to the peak and survived? When was it, 1952-53? They asked Sir Edmund Hillary, why did you climb Mount Everest? And he answered, because it is there. You know, how, how can you have such a majestic thing as that and not want to get to the top? How, how can you have such a, an amazing phenomenon as this mighty, uh, almost unclimbable mountain? How can, how can it be there and you want to know about it? Why should I climb it? Because it's there! I, I know exactly what he means. Why should we look at the length and the breadth and the height and the depth? Because it's there. Because God has given it to us. And, and there's nothing that God gives to us that, that's not going to bless us. He's not throwing unnecessary things to us. If it's there, then you can be sure you need it and it's going to bless you. You should get into the length and breadth and height and depth. It's there. But, uh, but more than that, it will give you security. When you understand the doctrine of justification, you will know that you cannot be lost, and you'll know why you cannot be lost. You'll, you'll see that the kind of logic, not, I don't mean Aristotelian logic, but you'll see the rationale and the, the coherence of uh, the biblical teaching. You will know that you could never be lost. It will confirm your salvation. It will, it will make you know that you are indeed saved, that you have passed from death to life. It will move you with wonder and gratitude. It will cause you, it will want you to praise and worship and live for God. It'll, it'll affect the way in which you live. When Paul's, finished, when Paul's finished all of this at the end of chapter 3, he'll then say, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the call in which you've been called. If this great salvation has, has come to you, well, says Paul, now I urge you, walk in a way that corresponds to all that's happened to you. Walk in a way that balances, that is worthy, that is uh, corresponding to the greatness of the calling with which you have been called. When you know the, the mighty treasures of the gospel... It, it sets you on fire. You want to live for God. You want to say, well, Lord, if you've done all that for me, then, then I want to live for you. Or as the great uh, hymn writer Isaac Watt puts it, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. You see, you want to survey it. You don't, you don't, it's not a casual glance. You want to survey and, and look at the wonders and the glories. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Now, you, now you see the, the logic of the hymn. When, when I survey the cross, well, this demands everything I've got. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Now, that's the impact the scriptures have upon you. When you really see the, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of these amazing things that God has done for us, where you say, well, if the Lord's done that for me, if I can never be lost, and I want to live for him. If, if he's determined to make me holy, if there's been a, a plan from the salvation of the world, from the, before the foundation of the world. Well, if he's been planning for millions of years to make me holy, well, then I've got some good chance of, of getting there. You know, maybe, maybe there's hope for me after all. It impacts your life. You see the, the greatness of what the Lord has done for us. And so, I believe in uh, having a, a good theology of salvation, but uh, we mustn't get hypnotized with theology. We, mu- we mustn't get too intellectual. We mustn't enjoy the intellectual stimulus of it. It's very intellectually stimulating. You've got a, you've got a mind. Well, there's nothing that will exercise your mind more than the glories of the gospel. It'll keep you, it'll keep you thinking about it forever and ever and ever. You'll, you'll never get to the end of it. But uh, we mustn't get so intellectually excited. We mustn't get a. Uh, we mustn't think of it as as, as as if we were studying Shakespeare or doing a, a clever crossword puzzle in the Times. It's, it's not just a, an intellectual game. It is something that is to impact our lives. And I also think that that means then 
if all that I've said is true, I believe that means we should take some care in the way in which we lay out our teaching. Uh, scholars and theologians often sort of debate how you, you, you lay out biblical teaching and uh, is there any importance in the order and the way in which you present things. I think there is. I, I think um, you, you can lay out what you believe in a way that's, that's bad and is damaging and actually hinders people rather than helps them. I would say the way to uh, lay out salvation, when, when you're thinking, when you're saying to yourself, now what do I believe about salvation? The way to, to lay out the teaching about salvation in your own mind is to begin with the big things. When you just uh, read through the Bible, what's, what's the big thing that in passage after passage after passage is, is, is just hitting you and you, you notice it all the time? What are the big things? And there are three of them. We'll look at them. Every passage you ever meet in this connection will tell you that salvation is by Jesus. Salvation comes from a person. It's not, it's not a system, it's not a theology, it's not a doctrine, it's a person. Every main passage you ever look at will tell you that salvation is by grace. Every main scripture you look at, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Jesus in his ministry among the people of Israel before he goes to the cross, they're all, they're all full of teaching that salvation is by grace. God is giving you this salvation. You're not earning it or deserving it. Every passage you look at will tell you <coughs> that salvation is by faith. So those are surely the big things. Salvation is by Jesus. Salvation is through grace. Salvation is by faith. That's all you really need to preach evangelistically. You, you don't need to uh, go into great details when you're trying to help unsaved people. You just say, Jesus is there for you. God wanting to give this to you. You must believe. You, you do not go into all the details. And uh, very often, you might notice that, um, that how these people in the Bible, Jesus and the apostles, how often they, they leave things out that maybe you, you might want to mention. Do you notice when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, there's no doctrine of the atonement there. When, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, well, you, you crucified him. That was a bad mistake. You, you, called, for, you called for him to be, to be crucified him. But the one that you crucified, God has highly exalted him. Actually, he's, he's God's saviour. He's the one predicted in Joel. He's the one predicted in Acts 16. And he's the one who's now pulled out the spirit and, and you, you crucified him. And that's, that's making them feel terrible. And, and they, they're, they're being so convicted by sin, they cry out, they interrupt the sermon. What should we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? I tell you, repent, turn your whole life around and, and come to faith, get baptized. God will forgive you. He'll give you the Spirit. And have you noticed, he's not expounded justification of the cross or the atonement. He's not said, well, Jesus took your sins and he bore your sins and his body on the tree and that's how your sins can be forgiven. He's not explaining anything. That will come in the epistles later on. He'll say things like that. I'm quoting New Testament letters. But it's not there in the first sermon on, the, on their Pentecost. There's not even much mention of the atonement. He doesn't need to uh, be, be teaching those people theology. They, they, a few weeks ago, they crucified Jesus. He, he's not giving them some course. He's saying, you crucified him. God sent him into Israel, and you crucified him. And they're being convicted of sin, and they're alarmed, and they're scared, and they're crying, oh, what should we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he tells them what to do and helps them. He, he's, he's not uh, giving them any kind of course. He's preaching, and there's a lot that he does not mention. He just uh, says, Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole plan of history that you Jewish people have been waiting for. You crucified him. Now, now repent, change your whole life around, put your faith in him. He'll save you and forgive you and give you the Spirit. But there's not much um, explanation of the cross in the middle of all of that. So the big things are the person of Jesus, grace, and faith. And then I would think in, in the way in which you lay out your teaching, and I, I emphasize all of this because if you have some kind of commitment class course, or if you give newcomers a kind of what we believe statement, don't plunge into predestination or plunge into sort of deep theology. Just say, no, we believe that salvation is by Jesus, salvation is by God's grace, salvation comes when you believe in Jesus. That's all you need. Don't go into all the details, even, even major things, they're very important 
very major importance. You don't deal with those things with newcomers or put them in your introductory leaflet. Don't put things like that in it. But then scripture goes into all of the details, justification, the new birth, and all the things that God does to us as we come to salvation. We're taken out of the kingdom of darkness. We're put into the kingdom of God's dear son. We die to sin. We die to the Mosaic law. We have eternal security. There's no condemnation. You work it all out in great detail, as Paul does in Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere. And then the last thing that you do is you bring in the doctrine of predestination. But that, but that, that does not come in to begin with. Don't, don't get people to be obsessed with predestination. You'll, you'll, you'll be uh, really confusing them. I remember preaching once in a, in a young people's meeting in Nairobi University at a Youth for Christ rally. And a, a young man came to see me afterwards, a, a student, and he said, well, you know, I really, I really want to be saved, because I'm not sure whether I can be. And I said, oh, oh, what's your problem? He said, well, I want to be saved, but I'm not sure whether I've been predestined. That was, that was what was uh, holding him up. I want to be saved. I'm not sure whether God has chosen me. I'm not sure whether I'm one of God's elect. So, uh, you know, I'm not, can I really be saved? I don't know whether I'm one of, one of the predestined, he said to me. Well, someone, you see, had got to him with the doctrine of predestination. That's, in no ways was that helping him. It was actually holding him up and hindering him. It's actually stopping him from getting saved. Um... And I'll tell you what I said to him. I didn't say to him, no, so there's no such thing as predestination. I didn't say that. I didn't explain predestination away. I didn't say, well, actually, you just choose, and, and that's all there is. God just foreknows what you're going to do. I didn't sort of get rid of the doctrine of predestination. I'll tell you what I said to him. I said, that's nothing to do with you. You, 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 you. That's one of the advanced things. A couple of years, couple of years later, we might talk to you about that. At the moment, that's not what God's saying to you. A moment, God is saying, Jesus died for you upon the cross. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. That's all you need to bother about. You can get into the advanced things a few years later. This is not for you. When you go to school, you learn your, your, your times table. Two twos are four, three, two, three twos are six, and four twos are eight. What's five twos? It used to be ten when I went to school. But... Uh, you don't go into differential calculus or, or, or algebra. You, you just begin with, with your elementary two or three times table. And I said, you're in the baby school. You're in the baby class. Don't, don't try to be in, the, in the, the upper echelons of theology. All you need to know is you're a sinner. Jesus died for you. Believe on Jesus. Get saved tonight. Come, come back to predestination in about three years' time. And he came to faith that night. Sometimes you have to get rid of these things in order to be, to be simple. And uh, in, in Acts chapter 13 where Peter, is it Peter or Paul? Paul is preaching, and uh, after the sermon, it says in Acts 13, 49, those who were ordained to eternal life believed. It doesn't say those who believed were ordained to eternal life. It says those who were ordained to eternal life believed. But I want you to notice, that is after the sermon, not in the sermon. In the sermon, there's absolutely nothing like that at all. It is, you crucify Jesus, repent and believe, and if you, if you Jews won't believe, you'll go to the Gentiles, you must submit, and put some people believe. And the comment on the sermon is, those who are ordained to eternal life believed. It's not in the sermon, it's the comment after the sermon, comment, looking back on it from the viewpoint of the readers of the book of Acts. So the last thing we want to bother with is predestination. I'm not saying there's no doctrine of predestination. There is. But it's not a kind of fatalist philosophy. It's not, it's not a kind of fatalism. It's not like the Islamic views of uh, predestination. It's the will of Allah and you're sort of passive and complacent. It's not like that. It doesn't work that way. And it's, it's not a thing that you bring in in the beginning. When you read Romans, you, you read chapters 1 to 3, how sinful people are. It ends up in 3.20, every mouth is stopped, the whole world's guilty before God. And But now, but now, Christ has been sent now, a righteousness from God is revealed. And he's told all about Jesus and how God has put him forward to be the sacrifice for our sins. Then he works it out, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, we've died to sin, chapter 6, we've died to the law, chapter 7, there's no condemnation, chapter 8. He's not mentioned predestination. Nowhere, nowhere does that come in. Until he's trying to convince the Roman Christians that they never, ever will be condemned. There's no condemnation ever. And he'll say, well, the law's been dealt with, verses 1 to 4. The flesh is dealt with, verses 5 to 13. 
we're given the spirit of adoption in whom we call cry, Abba, Father. These sufferings don't have, don't have to worry us. There's a, a day of glory coming which will far outweigh any suffering. If we were in weak, the Spirit helps us to pray. And then his last argument, the very, very last thing he ever says in this particular section is, and those whom he foreordained, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And no one falls out along the way. And he's finished. The last thing he ever says. Next verse says, what then shall we say to these things? He's finished now. Now, what do you think about this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, he's now pressing his message upon the people, as any good preacher should do. He, he's finished, but if you're a good preacher, you haven't finished when you're finished. Even when you're finished, you don't just say, oh, let's leave it there, we'll come back next week. No, no, you press it upon people. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. You see, he's now pressing the message upon his readers. But, but the last thing he ever mentioned was predestination. It comes in just at the end for us to know that our salvation is part of a great, massive plan. And because it's part of a great, massive plan, it cannot fail. We cannot be lost. History will reach all nations. Every nation will be brought to Jesus. Uh, even Israel will come in, in the fullness of the Gentiles. Even Israel will turn. And so is, all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. Paul's got a massive uh, view of the plan of salvation. And we have some part in it. It's not that we, we made some little decision. It's that God took hold of us and brings us into his plan and calls us and uh, says, I'm bringing you to glory. It's, it's a, a massive drive of God's royal power behind our salvation. And when you see it, when you see this whole plan of salvation, you are totally sure that it cannot fail. But you don't, that's not the first sentence, that's the last sentence. And in the history of theology, it's interesting to, uh, to see how the history of theology goes in this connection. All the greatest men of God have always believed this. People like Augustine, who's the greatest figure in the early church? Augustine. Well, he believed all of this. He believed in the gospel message. He didn't know everything, but he knew a lot. And then the reformers, Luther, Calvin, in, in Germany and Switzerland, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, here in Britain. These men all believed in this gospel of grace. Read, read the 17th article of the, of the Church of England, the most perfect statement of predestination ever been written. A superb statement. All these early reformers, they all believed that. Whitfield, all the greater revivalists or revival preachers of the 18th century, Spurgeon, all the great missionaries, they, they all believe this. But uh, sometimes it decays, and uh, the great John, this, this, this kind of teaching is often associated with, with Calvin, John, John Calvin. People call it Calvinism. It's not Calvin, it's just the gospel. But uh, because he was the great writer and the senior leader, in the 16th century, people call it Calvinism, but it's not really Calvinism, it's just the gospel. But um, when you read Calvin's Institutes, again, it's not full of predestination. Calvin hardly, hardly mentions it. What is true of Romans is true of Calvin's Institutes. You read, you read book one, it's in four books. You read book one, nothing about predestination there. Book two, still nothing about predestination. Book three, still not very much. And then finally, he'll bring it in towards the end somewhere, and it's to give you assurance. It's to make you know this plan, this, this plan of God is in the context of a great plan. It sort of comes in about three quarters of the way through the institutes of Calvin's great work. But then Calvin's successor in Geneva, in the Geneva Academy, the great, the great center of Protestantism and of the preaching of the gospel in 16th century Europe, Calvin's successor in the Geneva Academy was a guy by the name of Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A. You read Beza's theology, predestination is in chapter one. It's a kind of fatalist philosophy. God's ordained this, and, and you're, you're, he's just working out this kind of fatalistic plan. He, he makes predestination fill the whole book. It's a kind of determinist philosophy. Well, you see, that's the one thing that Calvin and the New Testament does not do. It does not fill the whole Bible with, with sort of fatalism. And, uh, and Paul can move, can move from Romans chapter 9, where he says it's not of man that wills or man that runs. It's of God who has mercy. It's not, it's not our, our big efforts. We don't save ourselves. It's of God. But in the next chapter, he can say, I'm praying for you Jews. Romans chapter 10. How, how shall they hear? And there's a preacher said to them, 
he's not fatalist. He's saying, no, there must be praying, there must be preaching, there must be a message. If you confess with your lips, if you believe in your heart, this is not fatalism. He moves from Romans 9 to Romans 10. He moves from this powerful plan of God to our responsibility, how we pray and preach and have a gospel message. There's no sense of contradiction. He moves from in and out of the two things very easily. He's not got a fatalist philosophy. He just knows that back behind everything is the power of God. And he'll bring it in at the end of his teaching to, to show you this is secure because it's all part of a great, a mighty plan. So I am putting it to you, the order in which we present things is really quite important. Of course, you, you can teach the Christian gospel beginning anywhere. Uh, if, you, if you start talking about anything and you keep on going, you will cover everything. It's like a kind of circle. You, you could begin at any point in the circle and keep going, and eventually you'll go around the whole circle. It's... Uh, It's uh, like that. So you can talk about the gospel starting at any point. But if you're trying to uh, lay out what you believe, some some ways of doing it are better than others. You can actually start anywhere. I remember being in a a cafe in uh, Nairobi once, and uh, as I came in, a man who vaguely knew me saw me and greeted me. He said, oh, uh, hi, how are you doing? I've not seen you for a long time. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been in India. He said, oh, India. He said, you know, I really like India. He said, I, I think, I think I'm going to be a, become a vegetarian. I'm, I'm learning about the Indian discipline. I'm going to, I think I'm going to become a vegetarian. I said, uh, oh, you ready? He said, mind you, he said, India is very, a very dirty place. A dirty place is India, he said to me. And I said, yeah, it's theological. And I, he said, what do you mean it's theological? I said, well, you know, if you believe some cow is God, you're not going to be very hygienic in how you keep your cows. If you're sort of worshipping the creature, you're not going to be, it's going to sort of affect the way in which you, cows wander all the place. And if you believe in reincarnation and some, some sort of ant might be your aunt reincarnated, you better not squash the ant, it might be your aunt. I mean, these things are all theological. What you believe about life is, is going to affect what you worship, now, even how you treat animals and, and ants because of what you believe. And we got talking, and we talked for an hour, and beginning with ants and dirt in India, we covered everything. You see, you just keep going, yeah, but there's a God out there, and the question is, do you believe in his creation? And actually, you're in trouble because you've sinned against him. You keep going, you keep going, you'll go around the whole circle sooner or later. You can begin anywhere. This is where you should preach. Your your next-door neighbor starts talking about, about the election. There were these politicians, oh yeah, you know, everybody's a sinner. Uh, and you start, you're there, you're off on the Christian gospel. And you keep going. And you, you just go around the circle. Eventually you will cover everything. You can begin anywhere. That's, that's how you evangelize. You, wherever people are, you start where they are. If they know nothing, that's all right. You start with where they are. Sometimes I preach in India, in places where they've never heard the gospel ever in their lives. So they wouldn't even know what the word Jesus means. You have to assume nothing. There's one God. That's one God. He made everything. He made that cow. He made the sun. He made you. He made those trees. He made everything. There's one God. That one God has a son. He doesn't have an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or a brother or a sister. He does have one son. He doesn't have two sons or three sons. He has one son. And he came into the world became a man and they call him Jesus. You, you, you just go very, you, you assume nothing. And you can do it with anybody anywhere. No matter where they are, you start with where they are. And you just comment on something they've just said to you. And you keep going. You go around the whole circle. Eventually, you're giving them a kind of glimpse of the whole of salvation. And, they, and you're sharing the gospel message, as long as they keep listening. And, uh, and then you leave it with them. And this particular conversation, I'm about to stop now, this particular conversation, I said, well, we've talked for an hour, there's a big difference between, I can see there's a big difference between you and me, you're searching and I'm not. Now, you know, you're searching, you're going to be a vegetarian, you go to India and you'll think, I'm not searching, I've given up searching. He said, what do you mean? You know, we went to sort of search for the answers of life. I said, no, no, I'm not searching, you're searching, I'm not, I'm not searching anymore. And he kept on sort of arguing with me that we should be searching for an answer of life. I said, the reason why I'm not searching is because I've found. You know, you don't look for something when you found it. Well, actually, I didn't need to find the answer because the answer found me. Can I tell you how I became a Christian? And things went on from there. You end up with the, the point where you have, the answer has found you. And you, and you, 
share your testimony and your story. That's, that's how we preach. This, this is how we reach Muslims and Hindus and pagans. And there's ample chances. Uh, I have a daughter who's in Switzerland, in Basel. And, uh, you know, these European towns, they have all these sort of festivals. You, you get some big jamboree on some particular date for Basel. and Everybody brings out their, their stores and their kiosks and so on. And so the, ch- the Basel church came out with a kind of kiosk on the, on the front, uh, on, on the... Uh, on the uh, square marketplace, and uh, people who had never been to church in their life came to them and said, Who are you? What was this? Well, we come from the church. Oh, what do you do there? Oh, we, we read the Bible and we sing songs and we. You, you, go into, you, go into, you go into a room and you sing songs to each other. You read a book. It's a bit weird, isn't it? You know, and all these total pagans who've never been to a church in their lives, these, these modern Europeans. But you just keep talking, you keep talking. Hey, well, I'll tell you why, why we've got something to sing about. The reason why we sing is because, because you know, you, you don't sing when you're miserable. You only sing when you've got something to sing about. So you, you, keep, you keep talking, you keep talking. You're round and round and round the circle. And finally they say, oh, can I come next Sunday? And, and you're getting somewhere. This is how we are to proclaim our gospel in modern Europe. This is how we rebuild the altar and share our message with the world. So let's stop there for a while and have a, have a break.